Father in heaven, we echo the words of this song we just sung. Lord, in Christ alone, we stand before you. Father, we praise you for the provision of your Son, that before in, in him and him alone, we stand before you with our sins forgiven, with free access to your holy throne, with this re- restored relationship with you, because Christ died and rose again on our behalf. And Lord, we praise you, we thank you, we worship you. We ask that even as we uh, sing of Christ, may you now, as we open up your book, show us more of Christ whom we sing. Give us a greater understanding, not only of the reality of our salvation in Christ, but that we would understand how his death provided our salvation and how, Lord, Christ saves us. We pray that, that as we study you, this passage this morning, as we, <clears throat> as, that your spirit would teach us and that you would cause us to not only understand, but that you would lighten our, our hearts, a, a, a renewed passion and, and fervor and excitement and, and joy over the, over the gospel, over the, of Christ crucified for us. And for Lord, we pray that, uh, that you would equip us so that we, we might send us forth to be your instruments for your glory and uh, make us the church that you wish us to be. We thank you for all that have gathered this morning here in person as well as online. We especially pray for the one who does not yet know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Perhaps they're seeking, perhaps they don't even know it and they're deceived and self-deceived. But God, today, open up their our hearts, their eyes, their minds to understand that Christ died for them and that he is their only plea before you, our holy God. And pray that today might be a day of salvation and rejoicing because Christ died for them too. Lord, we ask that you be glorified in our, ser- in our continuing our service now as we open your book. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Please uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 to 28. And again, I just uh, rejoice and thank you for the, thank the wor- God for the worship team this, uh, this week, not only for the songs that they chose, but I love even just the new, uh, the new voices as well as the new instruments uh, uh, that were used today. Just uh, always a joy to just see the different giftedness of our, uh, many of our musically um, talented individuals who use their skills uh, to lead us in worship. Of, in songs. What a joy. We praise God for them and, and uh, rejoice in that. Well, today we're going to, st- on this first Sunday in Christmas, uh, we're not going to focus on Christ's birth, but Christ's death. Christ's death. And you may be wondering, well, that's, uh, this is not Easter, B.H., uh, so why Christ's death? Well, um, there's a reason. Yeah, you know, uh, you may have noticed or, you, or you've heard that there are, are a lot of fabulous free things uh, on the shelves in our foyer, like our uh, fantastic calendar, I heard. Uh, but uh, along with, alongside there on our bookshelves, there's a lot of free things there, and you're welcome to take any of it at all. And you see anything that's on there, go ahead and take it, uh, even if, you know, you should. It's, it's meant for you. But you may have noticed, if you go back there, that there's this little book there. It's free. Can you believe a free book? Rediscover Church. And the subtitle of that book is why the body of Christ is essential. And it's a, it's a, it's a good little book. It's about the, the essentiality of the church. You know, with the pandemic, of course, there has been a lot of resurgence and discussion about the, the importance or the essentialness of church. 
And this is a, a conversation that has been healthy to have. It's been a great conversation. I think all of us probably just took, were, just took church for granted a lot before the pandemic. And then, of course, those, we went through those various several months where we had to, we had to start worshiping online, and we, couldn't, uh, and we couldn't get together in person. That was really, that was really a tough time. It was hard. And, you know, of course, some of us, you know, like that, you know, the, just not even have to change and you know, have to wear a suit and tie every Sunday. And that was kind of nice. Uh, but, you know, there, after a while, you, you kind of realize that something was missing in that. And we had a lot of good discussion about that and, uh, in, among our church and the church leaders. And but you know while government utilities medical facilities understandably were classified as essential essential uh, for the well-being of the society, churches were left out of that conversation. They were they were left out at least initially. Now, but I believe that one could make an argument that, and we obviously we do here believe that uh, that churches are also essential. They're essential in. In contrast to medical facilities that were essential for one's physical health, churches are essential for one's spiritual health, right? Our spiritual health. You have a spiritual problem. You don't go to a, the hospital. You don't go to Kaiser and say, you know, I'm, I'm wrestling with fear about death. I'm wondering about the existence of God, whether he's going to judge me or not. You don't go to that or there for that. You go to a church or you go to some religious institution. You might find that. Now, churches are are essential. And I think all of you here would probably agree with that. Uh, but if I ask you the question, what makes churches essential? What is it that is so essential about church to the, for one's spiritual health? How would you answer? What do you think? Churches are essential because the church offers the world one thing that no other business, no other organization, no other institution of this world can offer, does offer. The church alone offers Jesus Christ. The church alone offers the good news of the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. And this is what the church has to offer to the world. No other business offers this, no other organization, no other institution is the church. The church is essential because Christ is essential. Christ alone has, has promised to build his church, to indwell his church, to preserve his church. Why? Because she alone has been given the task of making disciples of Christ through the teachings of the word of Christ, which, are, which is the gospel of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. And therefore, the church is essential because Christ is essential. That's the short answer. The church alone offers Christ. Now, San Francisco city government wants to start preaching Christ, more power to them. But they, Christ does not promise to dwell in them. Christ does not promise to build the city of San Francisco. By the way, Christ doesn't promise to build Apple as big as it grows, nor does he promise to build Amazon. But Christ promises to build the church. And that is a worthy investment of your resources because it will always grow and it will have an infinite return on investment. The church is, as the body of Christ is essential because Christ is essential. So this Christmas season, I really, I thought about it in discussion with the other pastors, a little brief series on not the fact that the church is essential, but that Christ is essential. 
Christ is essential. And I know we're preaching to the choir here because this is a church, and that's why you're here, because you, you need Jesus Christ. If you don't, then you don't feel like you need Jesus Christ. I hope we'll convince you of that. The Word of God will convince you of that before you leave this month, okay? That you need Jesus Christ, that Christ is essential. And in the next four weeks, we're going to cover how Christ is essential. This week, I'm going to cover Christ's death is essential. Next week, Pastor Ray is going to preach on how Christ's life is essential. His life on earth was, is, is essential for you and me. And uh, two weeks from now, I'm going to come back and preach on how Christ's birth is essential. And then at the end of the year, we're going to focus on how Christ's resurrection is essential. And in all these ways, hopefully you will grow and I will grow in our understanding that Christ is essential, that we need Christ, that we desperately need Christ. And, and hopefully that's something that will just light a fire into our hearts that will cause us to love Christ and want to cause, cause us to go and, and proclaim Christ to a world that needs him. Now, as we consider why Christ's death is essential, then we turn to the book of Hebrews this morning. The book of Hebrews is a, is a tough book to interpret. It's tough primarily because most of us who are Gentiles don't know anything about our Old Testament. That's, that's why it's a hard book to understand. This book is full of Old Testament quotes, Old Testament references, references that most of us would not understand unless we happen to be st- st- you know, students of the Old Testament. And it's not just a, common, it's a casual reading, but actual study of the different elements that are found in the Old Testament. This book, of course, was a, is a book that's written anonymously. We don't know who the author is, but it's an epistle that seems to be written to a Jewish audience because of all the references to, Jewish, uh, uh, to the Jewish uh, scriptures, the, the Old Testament. Now, um, and it was written to a, this Jewish background audience, uh, most likely believers, at least the majority were believers, to communi- communicate to them of the superiority of Christ. This was written in a time when there was a lot of persecution against Christians. This was before the fall, before the uh, destruction of Jerusalem, AD 70. This was probably during, uh, um, and, uh, during that time when the Roman Empire was persecuting Christians, uh, during the period of Nero and a little bit after that. And so this was not a fun time to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. And so these Jewish background believers were, were tempted to think about or maybe discouraged and thinking that maybe they need to go back. They need to go back to the, the Jewish ways and, and kind of fly, go under the radar. But what the author Hebrew shows to us is he tells them, no, don't go back. Don't fall away. Don't fall back to your old ways because what Christ offers in the new covenant is much better than the old covenant that, your, that our peoples once had. And in, our, in this, our current chapter, and this book, in our current chapter as well as the whole book, it shows the superiority of Christ and his new covenant over the old covenant. Uh, and we're going to see this contrast of this old and new covenant in this chapter. And, but uh, for a simple outline, we're going to see three sections, three parts, three explanations for why Christ's death is essential. So hopefully you walk away. Three explanations for why Christ's death is essential for you and for me. Or it's, it's essential that's for us. It's essential for the world, okay? And uh, this will be something that will, um, you know, this will, I hope, will encourage your hearts. I trust it will. The first reason, the first explanation for why Christ's death is essential is this. According to verse 15 and 17, that the new covenant required a death. The new covenant required a death. And some of you right there, it's like, new covenant, what's that? And you know, for a long time, I was a Christian for a long time. At least I was, I, well, I proclaimed to be a Christian for a long time. I didn't even know what the new covenant was. 
I just came across it one day, and I was like, what is a new covenant? And uh, I, I, I hear about it, but I really don't understand it. And so maybe that's kind of, and that may be some of you. I wouldn't be surprised if it's some of you, because it's not a verse, it's not a passage that you, or a phrase that you normally talk about. When was the last time you used the word new covenant in your speech? Yeah, you don't remember. I don't know. Uh, so you, but you, it'll be in your speech today, I'm sure, and this week. But the new covenant required a death. Let's read verse 15 to 7 of Numbers chapter, not Numbers, Hebrews chapter 9. For this reason, he, this is talking about Jesus Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant here is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. And verse 15 is a key verse in, the, in this chapter. And we learn that Christ here, we, t- he t- we, t- we're reading, we learn that he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, first of all, what's the, we'll talk about what mediator events eventually, but let's talk about the new covenant. The new covenant is a reference to God's promise that was given through the prophet Jeremiah. In fact, it's found in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and 34. But you don't even have to turn back there. Just turn back one chapter to chapter 8 and look at verse, uh, chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. And, <clears throat> and there you're going to find, at least in my New American Standard Bible, a lot of small caps. And usually when you see small caps, that means it's quoting the Old Testament, right? That verses 8 through 12 is a direct quotation of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. It's a quotation of the, old, of the new covenant. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's explaining, he's exegeting, he's expositing the new covenant here in Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. He's talking about what is this new covenant? Why is it a better covenant? Why is it it's so, uh, something that you need to hold on to? And in those passages, uh, this passage, the new covenant, is contrasted with something called the first covenant. That first covenant refers to the, to the old covenant. Uh, the, that is the Mosaic covenant. <clears throat> when that Mosaic covenant was when God had given to Israel his, uh, his law. We read about it in our call to worship this morning, Exodus chapter 24. And it was there because, and, and part of God's covenant promises, at the heart of it was this, was this uh, it was a bilateral, it's kind of a two-way uh, agreement where God promises blessings upon Israel if they would obey his commands. And he pro- also promises curses upon them if they disobey his commands. But he would be their God, and they would be his people. And, and, that's, and that was the, 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 the covenant. However, we learn, of course, in the Old Testament, as we kind of read more of the Old Testament, that Israel's, Israel, despite the fact that they said they would obey, they oftentimes didn't obey. In fact, they consistently disobeyed. And there would be, just think about the period of the judges, there would be all these cycles of sin. Uh, even when after, shortly after they start wandering in the wilderness, they start sinning. Uh, and they keep sinning and sinning and sinning. And in fact, even though they claim to believe in the law of God, a lot of times they didn't even know the law of God. A lot of times they would just hide their, their law, their book, in the, in the car, their trunk of the car. I mean, oh, in, a, in a box in the temple somewhere. And they wouldn't even know where it was until, oh, look, it's here. Oh, what do you know? I should read it. Is that not only, and, and not only could they, they fail to keep God's law, they, they couldn't keep God's law. And so they were constantly disciplined by the Lord because of their sinful nature. And that eventually led to their exile from the land. Uh, 
And just before they're exiled to land, Jeremiah, God speaks to the prophet of Jeremiah these words. He says, you know, the old covenant has uh, basically, you have given it to you, but you have failed to keep it. And hopefully it, uh, it served its purpose. And God promises them a new covenant. He says, I'm going to give you a new covenant. A new covenant where not only we're in contrast to where you couldn't keep the law, you didn't even want to keep the law at times, I'm going to instead write this law not on books again, not on, not on parchment that's ex- outside of you. I'm going to write it on your hearts. I'm going to write it inside you so that you will internalize. It'll be a part of you. It'll be something that's so much a part of you that you desire to keep it. You'll want to keep it. And on top of that, you'll be able to keep the God's commandments. But the furthermore, part of the new covenant not only was the fact that he would put the law inside their hearts, but that the most important part of the new covenant, in my opinion, is that he would forgive their sins. He would forgive their sins. That, that's the thing. You can just turn back to chapter 8 and look at that and see the section, I will be merciful to, to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. They're going to all... They're going to have their sins forgiven. And the profound truth is that even though he's going to write their law in their heart and he's going to uh, cause them to be able to have a desire to obey and he's going to give them the ability to obey, but the reality is that they won't always obey. Does that sound familiar? It should. But praise God, the new covenant ensures the forgiveness of your sins. The forgiveness of your sins. That's, and that is the new covenant that, we're, that this pastor is talking about. So God promises a new covenant where Jesus Christ is the mediator of this new covenant. This new, let's say, agreement. This new contract. This new uh, promise between God and his people. And, you know, when we, and now let's talk about what it means to be a mediator. What does it mean to be a Jesus a mediator of this new covenant? Now, I know that in these days, we all have, we understand what mediators are. When two people are at conflict, when they're, when they're not getting along, when they're at war particularly, or when they're, uh, they're in disagreement, they hire a mediator. Usually we call them lawyers, okay, but mediator, you know, sometimes they're people, they come in, and they're going to then kind of listen to both sides and say, okay, all right, let, you want that, you want that, okay, let's find a little, let's, let's everybody give a, a, give a little and take a little. What can you give up? And what can you give up? And then and let's find a happy medium and so that you can really, or unhappy medium, but, you know, the middle of the road where you guys can meet in the middle and then be at peace. That's what we think of mediators, right? At least on a political kind of, in a political realm or even in a, a relational realm. But this is not the kind of mediator that Jesus is. He is not that kind of mediator. He does not do it this way. Why? Because in this case, the two parties involved that God is a, Christ is a mediator is holy God and unholy, sinful mankind. And in this case, where these two parties exist, the offense is completely one-sided, okay? It's all on this side. They're the ones who have completely offended. God doesn't need to check a single thing because he's been holy the whole time. What's more, the, not only is the offense completely one-sided, but justice's demand is completely one-sided. And what is demanded by justice is that humanity, all of sinful humanity, deserves punishment 
for our rebellion, for our sin, for our enmity against God. Because holy God who created this world must punish sin. He cannot just let it go. You sure, I sure hope you know, our governments don't let go of sin. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. I went there first service, but I'm not going to go again. Okay. <laughs> Exodus 34, 7 says, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God, that's God. So how can there be that if he's going to punish sin and God is holy and all of us are sinful, what, what, is, how, what can a mediator do? He's not going to say, well, God, can you, can you relax your laws a little bit? Can you relax it? Just, you know, just kind of wink, wink at it and let him glow. You know, it's all right. Just, just let him slide. Not that kind of mediator. He doesn't come to us and say, hey, hey, you know what? You guys are kind of messed up. Just try a little bit harder, okay? Christ is not that kind of mediator. But Christ as a mediator comes and he comes and he gives his life. He pays the price for our sins. He pays it, he acts as a mediator by his death. A death not, not in place of, because for that, that, that holy God needed to give, but it was unholy, sinful mankind deserved to give. A death has taken place is what verse 15 says, right? And it's a death that is namely Christ. And that death is a, was for the purpose of the redemption of the transgressions that were committed by, by the people of God. That's the redemption, that transgressions require a payment. The payment is death. But to redeem that, to pay for the penalty of that transgression, that's why Christ died. And he died, notice, for, those, for the people of God under that first covenant. So we're talking about the people of Israel, the Israelites, the Old, Old Testament people. Everyone in the Old Testament were guilty of sins. None of them could keep God's law perfectly. Everyone was deserving of God's wrath and judgment. Even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of Israel, they were too all sinners. You know, when you read the Bible, you know, kind of read just Old Testament, New Testament, sometimes we get this, you can get this mistaken idea. I, know, I think I, I believe this, or I kind of have this un, false understanding when I was a young Christian that, oh, in the Old Testament, people are saved in a different way. They're saved by keeping the law. But in the New Testament, people are saved by, by faith in Jesus Christ. Anybody ever believe that? Just me. I was a bad reader anyways. Uh, but that's what you would think. That's why, when, at least when I read kind of casually through the, through the Bible. But... What we learn instead is that both Old Testament and New Testament people are all saved by the same thing, not by the keeping of the law, but by faith in the death of Christ, faith in God's provision for the forgiveness of our sins through the death of Christ. The law, what was the law's purpose then? Of course, the Galatians talks about it being a tutor. It was meant to show us that were the Israel, the people of God were sinful, that no one could keep the law by themselves. And that's why they needed forgiveness of sins. And that's why when the time was ready, when they were being about ready to be exiled into, into Babylon in the final exile, God gave them that new covenant promise. He says, it's going to change. I'm going to bring it to the past. I'm going to give you this new covenant where I'm going to put my law in you. You're not just going to have to re- just uh, externally, it's going to be in you. And I'm going to forgive your sins. And you're going to know me, your creator. You're going to desire to obey it, and you're going to have the ability to obey it, and when you fail, I'm going to forgive you. And that's the new covenant. All who call to salvation receive the promise of eternal life through this new covenant. 
but the new covenant only came into effect through the death of Christ, through his blood that was shed. Verses 16 and 17 in chapter 9 just further illustrate the necessity of death by the example of a will. The word covenant in the Hebrew, it, it's, in our English we could translate it as covenant, but it, could also has the mean, it also has a secondary meaning of a testament or will. And some of your Bibles might have that as a little footnote, testament or will. And you guys, many of you know what a will is, right? A will is a contract that you kind of write it. You have a lawyer usually write it up and, uh, and, and, witness and get witnesses. And basically in it, you agree basically that all your, your certain possessions, that upon your death, you, so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so are going to get these respective possessions, right? As long as you're alive, no, those possessions are yours and not, it's not the people that you designate. It's only when you die does that testament or that covenant or that will come into effect. It's only upon your death that a certain person has to die before the will comes into, in, in, it comes into effect, in a sense, or is executed. Um, and so with that, then, we learn that a death is required even for, the, for basic wills, basic, basic uh, you know, covenants in the Old Testament. And so certainly that's an illustration that even with the new covenant, a death was required. Only when Christ died did the new covenant become valid. For he is a mediator who brings about peace between God and man through his death. Christ's death is essential. Because imagine if, if he didn't die. If he only just simply became as a man, he was incarnated, and then he lived the perfect life, and then he was just taken up, you know, just taken up into heaven like Elijah. Because he, did, wouldn't, he wouldn't have died, there could be no new covenant promise. You see, he took on flesh, he takes on human form, he comes to this world so that he would be able to die for us. To, step, to ratify that new covenant, to bring it into effect in fact, every month we are reminded of this. We're going to be reminded of it a little later after, at the end of service in communion. When Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, we remember that it's the death of Christ. His blood is his death. And it's his death that ratifies a new covenant. It's his, it's his, it's his death that where God, through faith in him, God writes his law on your hearts so that you actually want to keep God's commands. You actually desire to, and on top of it, he gives you the ability to, though we don't always obey. But praise God, in that new covenant, he also promises to forgive your sins because Christ died for you. That's praiseworthy. There's a second explanation, and that's the first thing. The, the first is that new covenant required a death. And the death was Christ. Now kind of the author of Hebrews kind of goes backwards a little bit in verse 18 to 22 and gives us a second explanation for why Christ's death is essential. And that is the old covenant required death. You might even just simply say deaths. Lots of deaths. The old covenant required death. And we see this in verse 18 to 22 of chapter 9. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated Without blood, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. 
saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Here we see the first covenant mentioned here, again, refers back uh, to the Mosaic covenant. When Moses inaugurated the old covenant, there was a, a lot of blood involved. In fact, you just look at this, these three verses, 18-22, and you see how many times, just note how many times you see the word blood there. It, this was a, a bloody event that took place, is being described here. The blood, and the blood here is not just means, it, it is literally blood, but it really refers to, it symbolizes the deaths of those animals that shed their blood. The blood that is all over this, this passage is an indication that a creature, a life, had to be killed, had to die in order for this covenant to be ratified, the old covenant to be ratified. And we have actually read this in our call to worship in Exodus chapter 24, verse 1 to 8. But let me just summarize what happened that day. God had given his covenant to Israel through Moses. He called Moses to, to, towards his mountain, and he had given it to Moses. And Moses then went and communicated verbally to all the people. He reiterated the covenant. He reiterated the Ten Commandments. He reiterated the, the book of the covenant. Just basically, it seems like at that point it was chapters 19 and 20. But he, he communicated the, the covenant at its, the essentials of the covenant to God's people. And then the God's people responded. And they said, yes, we'll obey that. We're going to obey those words. We will do what the Lord has said. And so then Moses, beyond just simply telling the people what God said, he wrote those words down. It says he wrote it down in a book or in a scroll. And then on top of that, he built an altar at the bottom of Mount Sinai, the foot of Mount Sinai, and where then instruct, and instructed the young men, uh, probably the young priests particularly, and with assisted by the Levites, to then make a series, a whole number of series of sacrifices to the Lord. Sacrifices of bulls, sacrifices of goats. And there was blood that was, you know, was all over this altar. And they collected the blood of all these animals. They collected them. Uh, half of the blood they were, was sprinkled on the altar. And the other half was collected in basins, in, in, in containers. Then, having collected the blood... So half was used on the altar. We had to be to cleanse and the altar in which uh, the sacrifice was made because it was made by human, sinful human hands. But then what was, what was he going to do with the other half? Then Moses, having already spoken the, command, uh, the covenant to them, he then read the words of the covenant, the, the ones that he'd written down, again to the people of God. It's almost like a, it's one of those, you know, uh, user license and user license agreements that you find. It's like it just pops up. And you got oh, you got to read the whole thing. You got to scroll all the way to the bottom. You know, it's, it's not enough to say oh yeah, you know, but you got to check in and say you read it. It's like so it's now written down, and he's going to read it all to you, make you read it, and then so that then you can check it off and say yeah, I, I, I agree to that. In fact, that's what the people of God do after the second hearing of the command of the covenant of the Lord. They all said. Yes, we are going to do that. We're going to obey. We will be obedient. And I, and I believe they were sincere. I don't think it was facetious. I believe they really wanted it. They were excited. God was saying, he, of all the nations, he was going to be their God. They were going to be his people. And he would bless them if they would obey. And it was like, yeah, we're going to obey. And so, at that moment, 
following their desire. This was, a, it was an agreement to a bilateral covenant, a two-way covenant. And in the culture of that day, all covenants were almost always ratified with the sacrifice of animals. Then think about even the animals. If you even go back to the early covenant, the covenant, some people believe there's something called an Adamic covenant. Even there, where, where God makes a covenant with Adam, that, that's a sacrifice of an animal that needs to be made. That's, that's what provided the garments for the clothes. You call it the Noahic covenant, where God promised not to judge them again. And there's, there's a sacrifice of animals there. You go to the Abrahamic covenant. And even the Abrahamic covenant, God tells him to, to set forth uh, Animals cut in half, and then, uh, then, then uh, God walks through that, kind of between the, uh, those sacrifices. And, of course, now we see the Mosaic Covenant, that there are always sacrifices of animals. There's deaths involved in ratifying covenants. And the deaths of these animals was always a symbol, was meant to be, a, first of all, a symbol of the penalty for anyone who would break the covenant. So if I break this covenant, may I be treated like these animals? May I be killed, basically, is... is is sort of the, uh, the picture there. But the Old Testament furthermore teaches that the shedding of all this blood also has a different, as an additional meaning. And it was, the Lord is teaching Israel through all this bloodshed and, and through the, um, this blood and this, the sprinkling of this, uh, uh, this sprinkling of the blood all, all across the nation of Israel was that, that there, the shedding of all Blood was, was a reminder that death is required to atone for their sins. That a, a life had to be taken and, and killed to atone and cover. Atone means to cover their sins. We see this actually referenced in Leviticus uh, 17.11, the reason for this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Uh, that is, it's, uh, our blood is symbolic of life. Uh, we just, in fact... Uh, we just had a blood drive in, in November, and we th- uh, thank you for all those who, who participated in it, uh, and, and you gave blood. I just got a text recently telling me that, hey, my blood was actually delivered to a hospital, and it's being transfused, and it's perhaps saving some lives. Really awesome. That's great. And we, we kind of know that because blood is life, and, it, and when people need it to live, you lose enough blood, you're going to die. And so blood, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Life is in the blood. And if God says, I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. It's this, that blood is a representative of, the li- of a life that makes atonement for Israel. And so all their sacrifices involved the shedding of blood. And even here, every Israelite had to be sprinkled with the, the blood. That other half of the basins, God, Moses then took and sprinkled it on the people. And it sprinkled it all over the, the, the book of the covenant as well. As a sign, as a, not only was it a God, but also upon the people that, there would be, that, this, that their covenant with each other was ratified. Everyone needed to be sprinkled with the blood, for everyone there needed a blood sacrifice for their atonement. They needed a substitute for them. And this would be a recurring theme all throughout Israel's worship. There would be when the tabernacle was built, and even later when the temple was built, uh, all even... Even the, the building as well as the holy objects themselves had to be sprinkled with blood as a reminder that because this, these buildings were made by human hands, sinful human hands, that they too needed to be purified and, and, and covered, atoned for because of man's sinfulness. And verse 22 of this whole section states, the, uh, kind of concludes the main, with the main point that all things are cleansed with blood. That is, 
they're all cleansed with death. And without the shedding of blood, without death, there is no forgiveness. See, sin against a holy God leads to death. Sin against a holy God leads to death. That is physical death. But sin against an infinite holy God leads to an eternal, infinite death. And that's why we die physically, but because our sin against the holy God, if we do not know Christ, we will spend eternity in conscious punishment and judgment in what we call hell, what the Bible calls hell. It is, you can, and you will, you will, you will spend your eternity there. See, sin against a holy, infinite God leads to eternal death, eternal separation from God. Either we will be paying our debt with our death and our continual separation for all eternity in hell, or if we wish to live, then someone else must die in our place. And for Israel, the blood of animals offered in faith, none of those animals ever, ever took away their sins. Why? Because they kept had to keep offering them. They were a temporary covering. They were a temporary substitute, ultimately all pointing, all these old, old covenant sacrifices, all pointing to the once for all substitute that would come, that would be made, and that's the, the, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. By the way, the mention here of almost all things are cleansed with blood just alludes to the, to the graciousness of God, the graciousness of God. There's an exception here for people who are extremely poor. And according to Leviticus 5, a person who was guilty of sin had to make a, a guilt offering or a sin offering. And that would involve what? An animal, a female lamb, a female goat. But if you couldn't afford that, then you would bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Again, it would still be offered. It was a blood sacrifice that would be, have to be uh, offered to uh, the Lord as a payment of your guilt and your, for your sin. But even then, in Leviticus 5, if you are too poor, even for that, God tells us in his law that you could offer a tenth of an ephah, that's not much, a fine flour. You could offer flour instead of an animal's if you could not afford it. And of course, you know that there's no blood in flour. And this is just an indication, a hint, a clue that the blood of animals never really actually cleanses anyone from sins. The blood of animals, because God even accepts flour if you can't afford animals. He's going to say, no, you're not, you got to be rich enough to, to get forgiveness. No. Even if you're poor and can't afford animals, there's forgiveness for you if you come by faith and offer the designated offering which God asks you to make. And it's an offering that's meant for the Israelite who offers it to point them ultimately to the, the once and for all death that will be made on their behalf for God's provision, for a final sacrifice for their sins. They simply needed faith. Not the blood of animals, but the blood of Christ is what they needed. The old covenant required death upon death upon death because those deaths point into the necessity of Christ's death. And the author of Hebrews now will bring this all home in our, in our last explanation for why Christ's death is essential, and that is because Christ's death is better. 
Christ's death is better. Death of Christ is better than the, than the death of all animals sacrificed in the Old Testament and the, under the Old Covenant. It's better in three ways, according to this passage. Christ's death paves the way to a, a better holy place. A better holy place, first of all. And we see this in verses 23 and 24. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The tabernacle and eventually the temple were, were basically, we learn here, were, were copies of the things in heavens, right? These were copies of things in heaven, and they had to be cleansed. The, the temp, just as the tabernacle and the temple, they had to be cleansed by the blood. But they were symbols. They were copies of heavenly things, it says. And, the, and this, these heavenly things are, are basically is, is God's sanctuary in heaven, God's dwelling, where God dwells and where the Lord God dwells in heaven. And just as the high priest would once a year have to enter into the holy place to, to offer sacrifices for God's people on the Day of Atonement, so Christ entered the holy place of heaven, it says here. Christ did not enter a holy place. He didn't, when Christ made his, uh, enter the holy place, like a, uh, he didn't go into the temple, he didn't go into the tabernacle, but he went into the presence of God with his sacrifice. And he appears there in the presence of God, it says, for our sakes, for us, and to make it possible that we could be there because he brings there the sacrifice of, his, of himself. See, the holy place of the tabernacle, as we've learned in Numbers, was, was significant in Israel's worship, and the holy place in the temple was significant in the place for Israel's worship. Why? Because there inside the holy place, beyond the veil, was the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where above the mercy seat dwelt the glory of God in their presence. And there God would meet with, people, with God's people, but not with all the people, with Moses, yes, Moses could go there, he was one of the rare who could go in there, but also with Aaron and with his, with his descendants, with the, the, the future high priests. They could go in there, but they, even they could only go there once a year, right? And they would go in there, and they would then uh, be representatives of God's people as they offer their sacrifices. No one else could go into that holy place or into that most holy place lest they die. But with Christ's death, because Christ died, it is now possible for anyone to have access to God's holy place, not the temple, not the tabernacle, but God's holy place in heaven, a better holy place, not one that can be destroyed and made by human hands, but one that's made by God, one that's preserved forever, and that we can enter there through Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand, having brought his sacrifice to God the Father, so that sinners like you and me can approach this place his throne through faith in Christ's death on our behalf. It's not just the, the pastors or the, the elders that go to before the, before the holy place. It's anyone and everyone. It's the rich. It's the poor. It's the Jews. It's the Gentiles. It's the Republicans and Democrats. Yes, even them. It's everyone can approach the holy place 
It's a better holy place through the death of Christ. Now, next, Christ's death is better not only because it's a better holy place. He provides a way to heaven, but it's a better high priest. Verse 25, 26 tells us this. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here, the, the clear reference is to the Old Testament Day of Atonement now. Talking about the priest entering the holy place year by year, once a year. Uh, and every year, the high priest would enter the holy place, offer the blood of bulls and goats, right? And for the sac- to, as a temporary covering for the people of God to forgive their sins. Uh, and he would offer for himself as well. But Christ's sacrifice is not of the, the, with the blood of bulls and goats. His sacrifice as the high priest was of his own blood, his own perfect sinless life. And that was sufficient to put away sin from God's, for God's people, for everyone, for all time. Past, present, and future sins all paid for, all covered by Christ's sacrifice. He would never have to offer another sacrifice again. Christ never, never has to come back to earth and die again on the cross. Because, oh, you sinned again, I'm going to come again and die for you. His payment was once and for all. It was sufficient. He never has to come back and, and dwell in the, and become some elements so that Christ's death, Christ's sacrifice might be redone, re, uh, re, re, recommitted re, again so that we can then partake of that sacrifice. His sacrifice is made once and for all. He paid for our sins. And he is the better high priest because he now sits at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us there at God's right hand. Satan is often called an accuser. And in other scriptures, it talks about him appearing before God. And, and, it is, and he can go before the Lord and accuse us of being unworthy because of our sin. He says, that, he, that you know, just as, as uh, remember when the, the illustration from Job is, is an example of that. He said, you know, had God, he might go there and, he, and God might say, hey, what do you think of Chester? And Satan says, Chester, he's a sinner, you know. You know, I, you know he's, he's not worthy. Say, what do you think of, of Leo? Oh, have you considered my servant Leo? No, no. Satan says, he's a sinner too. You know what he did? Oh, yeah, uh-huh. Hey, what do you think about Stephen? No, he's a sinner too. As the accusations come flying, because Satan, he has, his, he has his meaning. He knows what's up. He knows we're all sinners. He knows we all fall short. And though he accuses us, and though he is right, he doesn't have to lie. We're all unworthy of salvation. We're all hypocrites at times. We all fall short. There's probably not a single one of God's commands, especially the Ten Commandments, that we haven't violated in some way. But Christ, our high priest, intercedes for us by merely pointing to his sacrifice, his hands and his feet, as and reminds the God the Father that his death was a sufficient payment for the forgiveness of our sins. We have a better high priest. Lastly, Christ's death is better because we have a better hope. It offers a better hope for you and me. Verse 27, 28, And inasmuch it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ, will appear, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. 
Verse 27 is a passage that should strike fear in the hearts of every human being on this planet. Because it is God's truth. And if you can, you know, if, you, if, you know, if they don't, even people don't believe it, you should use this Bible verse to tell people. You know, God's Bible says it is appointed for man once to die. Do you believe that's true? No one's going to doubt that. They're going to say, yeah, that's true. All of us have to die. And then you say, but and God's word says, and then comes judgment. This is an inescapable reality and truth of God's word, that all of us are going to die one day. Nobody's going to avoid it. And it is a terrifying, not only is it terrifying to die and to face death, but it is more terrifying what happens after death. For after death, you will face the judgment before a, a holy, infinite God. That's what the, verse 27 tells us. No one is exempt from this reality. If anyone thinks they're going to, if anyone thinks that they're going to go there and they're going to say, oh, I'm going to get, they're going to get a passing grade before God by saying, well, hey, I've lived a good life or, you know, you know, Lord, you know, I've been good just in my heart. I'm, I'm just a good person. Or you know, you're going to say, well, I've done many good deeds. I gave blood. That, that's the Bible's blood drive. Or you've gone to church, or I heard a message about how Christ's death is essential, and I nodded a couple of times. You know, uh, anyone who thinks that there's anything we can do that will, that will give us a passing grade are in it for a big disappointment. There is no hope for sinful man before holy God. No hope, no answer, no plea we could give of our own self. We all would face eternal separation from him in hell. And this is a sad and sobering reality for when our friends, our family die without Christ. But Christ died. He came and like, human, like every human being was appointed to die. And he died. He died once also having been offered by the Lord to bear the sins of many on the cross. And he has entered the holy place of heaven with his sacrifice before the Lord to provide all who put their trust in him the hope of salvation. He doesn't need to come back again. His death was sufficient. It was once for all. He's not going to come back again to pay the penalty for sins. But this passage gives us hope because it tells us he is going to come again. And he's going to come again not with regards to sin, but he's going to come with reference to those who eagerly await him. He's going to come to deliver us. He's going to appear to, to save us completely. He's entered, he's going to come and to take us, uh, take his people home to heaven. And this will be the doctrine of the, the rapture of the church. And I believe this is a reference to the rapture. No matter how many sins you commit, no matter how many times you fail, all who put your trust in Christ's death have the better hope. For at our death or at Christ's return, he has promised to come and he will take us home to be with him in heaven. Christ's death is better. And that's why he is the mediator of a new covenant. And the new, there's no reason to ever go back to the old covenant because the new covenant is better because of Christ's death. And it is essential for our salvation. And let me just wrap up with a conclusion. The church is essential because Christ is essential. 
And Christ is essential because his death is essential. To number one, ratify the new covenant that guarantees the forgiveness of sins. Number two, to fulfill all the old covenant and its sacrifices, which pointed were only, and were only temporary pointers to his ultimate death. And thirdly, to offer us a better holy place, a better high priest, and a better hope than any sacrifices could give. One day, all of you here are going to die. And when you die, and you're going to stand before God in judgment, what will be your plea? And that's why I leave you with this simple question. What will be your plea when you stand before God's judgment? This is the most important question of all. What are you going to say? You could do a thousand great things in this world, but when you get to heaven, none of that's going to help you unless you understand what you're going to say before the Lord. Right? That's the only thing, right? Is that the only thing that matters? Yes. Will you plead Christ's atonement on your behalf? Though you are guilty of sin and worthy of eternal death, you who have believed upon Christ, who is your mediator, who died in your place, will you be sure, will you remember that your plea, my plea, is Christ's death? And as the great hymn goes, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, sits, okay? No tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue, no one can bid me thence depart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the reminder of Christ's death is essential, and we need Christ, and I pray that we would walk away from here with a, with a, just a renewed excitement and joy over the reality of Christ's death for us. I pray that if anyone here does not know Christ, may today be a day for them to repent and turn in faith in Christ's sacrifice on their behalf on the cross. And may they place their faith in him and his, re- his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins. May they receive the new covenant promises. May you write their law, your law in their heart and may you forgive them all of all their sins. And may you give them a hope knowing that one day they will be with you in heaven because of Christ's death on their behalf. Lord, give us this charge as we go forth into our world and give us this joy as we sh- and opportunity to share with this with others during this Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray.